0: Welcome to Living Well into the Future, where we speak with individuals from different generations about the most pressing issues of our time, from food and housing to health care and climate. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. Our show is all about exploring potential solutions to these complex problems, drawing on the expertise and insights of people from different backgrounds and age groups, Through meaningful conversations and thoughtful discussions, we aim to inspire positive change and make a real impact in our communities. So if you're interested in learning more about these critical issues and discovering innovative solutions, join us for Living Well into the Future. Together, let's work toward a healthy and secure future for all life on this planet. As we continue to explore sustainability and resilience, today we'll be looking primarily at Berkshire County, Massachusetts, where local and national conservation organizations play a critical role in working to protect and preserve our natural resources, promote sustainable practices, and build stronger, more resilient communities. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Jenny Hansel, president of a local land trust that covers all of Berkshire County, Berkshire Natural Resource Council. And in addition to Jenny, we'll be speaking with BNRC Director of Stewardship, Doug Brown, who has a master's in environmental studies from Antioch College of New England. We'll also speak with Laura Marks, climate solution scientist for the Nature Conservancy's Massachusetts chapter. She holds a PhD from Michigan State University in forest ecology. We'll also speak with Elizabeth Dillman, a lifelong resident of Berkshire County and hiking expert. We'll learn about their work, the challenges they face, and the impact that they're making. We'll also explore ways in which individuals can get involved in promoting sustainability and building resilience in their own communities. Join us as we delve into this important topic and discover how we can all work towards a sustainable and resilient future. Janine Hansel, president of BNRC, describes their mission this way.
1: To protect and care for the Berkshires for public benefit and enjoyment. And by the public, we don't just mean people, we mean benefit and enjoyment of all of the Things that live on the land, plants and the animals. Laura
0: Marks, the climate solution scientist for the Nature Conservancy's Massachusetts chapter, describes their mission this way.
2: The Nature Conservancy has a mission to protect the lands and waters upon which all life depends. And we're actually an international nonprofit. So we work in all 50 states and over 70 countries around the world And in each of those places, our approach is the same, which is we're really guided by science. So we look in that particular area at what the environmental challenges are and what the solutions are, and then work on protecting land for wildlife habitat and all the other ecosystem services that it provides, going first to the places that are providing the most ecosystem services and. Also, we always look for places where nature can solve problems for both nature and people.
0: Bess Dillman, born in 1950 on a farm in Otis, a small community in the Berkshires at the border of Massachusetts and Connecticut, on multiple days per week in all seasons can be found hiking, leading hikes, and teaching new hikers. She knows the Berkshire Hills to her soul, pun intended. Bess. We know one another from the Tuesday hiking group that you established about 12 years ago, but I don't know much about you. Where did you grow up?
3: I spent from birth to the end of high school in Otis, and I lived on a 350-acre farm. I call it an old house type farm with all different kinds of animals. We were half a mile from the state road, and the nearest neighbor was probably two miles away. Were
0: you always inclined to go out into the forests and explore?
3: Yes, my family did that. My father was a great outdoors person. He loved to be out in the woods and share what he knew. And he was always very excited if he found anything that was a little bit different or the first flowering plant of the season or whatever. So he mostly stayed on the property. There were a couple of old roads and old farm roads, woods roads. And then there were trails that he actually made. On your family's property, is it still in the family? It is not. My father sold the property in 90. And what has happened to the property since? A woman bought it, Cora Miller, and she replaced most of the buildings except for the beautiful old barn which she kept and she put her own house on it and various other buildings when she died she left the property to mass Audubon and that was very exciting for me because certainly i know that my father would have loved to have the property preserved like it is now and the plan is to rewild the area where I grew up and where there is a house now, where Cora Miller lived, so that plants, animals have unrestricted access to all parts of this. It's almost 900 acres.
0: Now that Bess introduced us to the Berkshires. Let's speak with Jenny and Doug from the BNRC. Jenny Hansel and Doug Brown, could you explain the role of
1: the Berkshire Natural Resource Council in the Berkshires? Sure. We are the land trust that works throughout Berkshire County and only in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. There is no other land trust that can say that. And so we have a unique role in having the big picture, but also being able to work very locally. And by land conservation, a couple of things. One is somebody might donate to us or we might buy with our own funds or donated or state funds land that we own uh, and that we care for on behalf of the people in perpetuity forever. And that's the part that I had to wrap my head around when I got here. So the 12 or 13,000 acres that belong to BNRC managed reserves, we own the property itself, but we also hold conservation restrictions, which in other places, Uh, are known as conservation easements. So you as a landowner might want to protect your land, but you still want to own it and live on it. So we purchase essentially, or you donate to us the development rights. So it's now protected forever. It can never be developed. We uh, own that piece of the property rights. And so when you sell the land, you're only selling the land that you live on, but we keep owning the property rights, the development rights. So the next owner and the next one and the next one have to honor that and can't develop the land in the future. So it's a way of protecting land forever. And there's a similar mechanism in place for farmland. And so we work a lot on protecting farmland too. It's such an important part of the Berkshire's ecosystem and kind of view sheds, you might say. Part of what makes the Berkshire special is the farmland we have.
0: Can we clarify what the goals of BNRC are and how they might have altered in response to the extreme weather events that we have been experiencing?
1: I think I'll paraphrase our mission statement, which is to protect and care for the Berkshires for public benefit and enjoyment. And by the public, we don't just mean people, we mean benefit and enjoyment of all of the things that live on the land, plants and the animals. And certainly when that was written, we weren't thinking that much about climate change itself. We were thinking about the changes in the landscape that come from development pressures, building, that kind of thing, pollution, toxic waste, whatever it might be. Um, But of course, now we're looking at it through several additional lenses, such as equity and inclusion, who is this land being cared for and who is benefiting from it, and how are they getting access to it, as well as what is going to be happening to this land in the next 10, 20, 100 years, and how do we approach that in in terms of what land we protect, and then how we care for it once we have it protected.
0: Berkshire County contains 130 towns and two cities. What value does BNRC bring to those towns and cities?
1: The land trust community has really worked on this, is to do research and find data that shows the economic impact of conserving land, and that it actually has a net benefit to the town economically. You no longer need the same level of services for that land, and also it creates more value so that the value of the rest of the land increases, and that increases your tax base. and just makes your town a nicer place to live. People want to move there if there's a lot of open space. So the net benefit to the town is considerable from having more conservation land. That said, it is not our job to fight all development. We, are, of course, see the need for balance and for economic development where it's appropriate. And we'd like to see more affordable housing, for sure, in the Berkshires. And we're interested in exploring more ways we can support that. But there's land that, once this land is gone, it's never coming back. And our goal is to identify those areas that are critical, that just the Berkshires wouldn't be the same, that connectivity would be lost, the species habitat is too important to allow to be developed.
4: Part of it too is with our conservation restrictions, we're not reading areas of wilderness. There, there are other land trusts that do that, but what we're doing is we're protecting working landscapes. And so while it might not be developed, it's still available to be actively farmed or to be actively logged according to regulations and smart management and what the restriction says. And so there is that part of the rural economy that still exists through the land protection that we do um and again has all those other co-benefits that Jenny identified
0: what other organizations in Berkshire County do you work with to accomplish your goals
1: a wide number of organizations on the conservation side anything from statewide organizations nonprofits like Massachusetts Audubon or trustees of reservations or state agencies frequently Department of Fish and Game or Conservation and Recreation we work with nationwide organizations like the Nature Conservancy and it's very important that we work with local organizations as well. That could be the town itself, the Conservation Commission, or many towns in Berkshires have local town-based land trusts, which tend to be all volunteer, not always, but mostly. And we collaborate with them as well. Doug, you have, for the past 10 years,
0: been working in the area of land stewardship to the north and to the west of where you are now. What have you seen in terms of both Changes to the land and also your approach to them.
4: I've only been living in Berkshire County for about two years, so I can't speak to the specific changes that one would observe here in the county. But what I can speak to, and more in general and across the Northeast, is we're seeing changes in the timing of different plant and biotic events, what's referred to as phenology, and so that might be. Uh, Some Something that you see in your backyard, that lilac bush that you have in your yard, and you notice that it's flowering a week or two earlier than when you first bought your property. These happen with things like our fruit trees here, where some seasons they flower before the pollinating insects are present, and so we might not have a good apple harvest that year. So some of those changes in the phenology and the timing of these biotic events that are important for Propagation and reproduction. But we're also seeing the spread and growth of non native invasive species that benefit because they have a bit more flexibility. They're more generalists in terms of how they approach our climate. And with those non native invasive plants, they might leaf out a week, two, or three before our native species. And so that's three weeks of a head start. On all that energy gathering and growth that they have. And on the other end, they'll stay in leaf weeks after our native plants. so they're they're out competing on the time frame, and then that results in out competing in the square footage of area that they might cover in any given ecosystem.
3: You
0: said something, Jenny, about when you had gone out with a gentleman who was looking at some, habitat restoration, perhaps, and you were looking at the bittersweet. Could you tell me about what his assessment was?
1: Yeah, and this is just one conversation I had. I don't think it is directing our policy or our approach necessarily, but a year or two ago, I had a walk on one of our properties with a scientist from the Cary Institute in Dutchess County and looking at the miles and miles are what felt like acres and acres of bittersweet. And he was sharing his view that the forests are going to change composition. Maples can live at a much higher temperature than other trees. And so these forests were probably going to ultimately just transition to being all maple. But he also said, you probably will not win the war against the invasives on these properties. So Be thoughtful about where to put your resources. Animals and plants can live in this place, even with the bittersweet. Is it a battle worth fighting? And it was just a provocative question to to be asked because I think up until then my attitude had been pretty simple. Got to fight the invasives, got to get it back to some idea of original. And I say that with air quotes because, as Doug will remind us, this land has changed multiple times. What it looked like prehistorically and then what it looked like during the settler years and then what it looks like now and what species and what plants. Things don't ever stay the same. <laughs> species move. They just do. And so how do we live most harmoniously and support the widest diversity, biodiversity, which I think it should be a guiding principle with what we have if we can't get rid of this bittersweet, is it still strategically appropriate to push it back in certain places to create certain kinds of habitat for certain species? Doug is the expert in that, not me. But it's a question that we have to keep asking ourselves and keep incorporating new science as it comes along.
4: The question is around invasive plants and choosing when and how to manage them, right? Yes. There's some ways that I try to think about it. And is one is all plants came here somehow. And it's that time frame that the rest of the environment hasn't adapted to them. So that might mean like some of the ways that invasive plants are aggressive and advantageous is that they don't have natural predators or pathogens. And so over time and allowing native species to evolve with them might allow some of those predators and pathogens to play a role in regulating their presence. But In the absence of that, I feel we have an obligation as the species that produced them and changed this environment that we have to both take a pragmatic approach and understanding that we won't make them all go away in entirety, but really focus on the areas where we have the most sensitive, threatened, or intact ecosystems. And the Commonwealth has done a fantastic job putting together some geospatial information called Biomap 3. And that allows us to look at the at the county, at the state, and see what areas are really critical, what are core, where there might be listed threatened species, or areas where we know that we don't have that much infestation on our properties. And so we prioritize those areas as to eating back that leading edge of invasive plants, or trying to stop them from being introduced to an area where they might really devastate rare species that are important to our greater biodiversity.
0: Could you tell me a little bit more about how you're protecting habitat and biodiversity in the projects you
4: steward? My colleagues who do the land protection projects have been focusing on areas of kind of landscape scale conservation. So where we are able to put together projects and have Contiguous acres of the thousands of acres. We're close to having an expanded reserve that'll be about 1800 acres, which will be our biggest. And so, trying to think about a property like that as a landscape unit is trying to understand what's there, understand the invasives that are there, but also the native and natural diversity and where we have areas of inherent resiliency and trying to bolster those resilient pockets and ensure that they are able to function and respond to change in ways that are adaptive to the climate, not maladaptive.
0: What would some of those ways be?
4: One of the ways would be in managing forest products. So if we're doing a harvest for commercial lumber or doing work around forest improvements is to favor species diversity and not choose maybe the the best looking trees, the most valuable trees, to try to have a broader approach to it so that what remains in a forest allows it to be healthier in the long term.
0: To learn more about managing forests with an eye toward resilience, let's turn to Laura Marks, who is shepherding the Nature Conservancy's Family Forest Carbon Program.
2: The Family Forest Carbon Program, a program that works with people who own 30 or more acres of forest land. I mostly work with people in Massachusetts, but the program in our area also covers all of Vermont and parts of New York. And the same program exists down in the central Appalachians, so Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Maryland. And this is a way to give people a little bit of incentive of payment to practice climate smart forestry on their land. There are papers about it in the scientific literature. Essentially, climate smart forestry practices do two things. The first is that they increase the amount of carbon that is stored in the forest over time. And the second is that they build up the forest's resilience, its ability to survive and bounce back from natural disasters, whether they're climate change related or other things. And there's always this third piece where the wording varies, but it gets at the idea that climate smart forestry needs to respect the rights of workers and the landowners as well. So you could do the best forestry in the world, but if you're not providing safety equipment for your loggers, that doesn't quite meet the the intent of that term. And the Family Forest Carbon Program offers landowners the option either to delay harvest or to do a climate-smart harvest that can include opening up some gaps, creating light in the understory, or doing some thinning of their forest and pays landowners for 20 years. And on the back end, it is a carbon market program, which allows it to tap into the funding sources that are part of these large and growing carbon trading markets that are out there.
0: In the areas that you're talking about, is, is there an impact on forests from logging now?
2: Yeah, so it depends on where you are in that geography. So New York has a lot more timber harvest than Massachusetts, Vermont also. When we think of when I think of Vermont at least, I often have a picture in my mind of working lands, right? Like dairy farms or um they often also view forests as growing trees and producing things from there. We all drink maple syrup, right? From the from Vermont. There is not as much forest management in general happening in Massachusetts, but the interesting thing about Massachusetts landowners is when you survey them, they tend not to list harvesting wood very high up on their list of reasons they own the land. So they'll say wildlife enjoyment or privacy, or maybe the land is a family legacy. They inherited it from their grandparents, it's a place they grew up. But in reality, many landowners in Massachusetts do some harvest over the course of the couple decades that they own that land. And often those are very well planned, carefully done harvests. But sometimes people just get into a bind where um, maybe they need to bring in some income for a life event, a child in college or a medical issue. Or sometimes someone just comes up and says, I'll give you this money to do this. And they don't necessarily have a plan for what they want to do with their land. And both of those situations are places where they can sometimes do a harvest that maybe could have been done in a way that more lined up with their values and their long-term goals. And that is a, that's a big piece of the Family Forest Carbon Program and a range of other programs that are offered by the state and federal agencies and other groups. The idea that both for climate change reasons and for the landowners themselves, if you're thinking out on this long, multi-decade time frame when you do your planning you're probably going to get better results, both for the forest and for what you want from the land.
0: Why do we want to sequester carbon and what role does the forest play in that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And those terms, sometimes get confusing. All of your listeners, I'm sure, are painfully aware that we're in this climate change crisis. And The reason for that, the ultimate cause of that, is that there is too much carbon pollution in the air. So we've burned lots of fossil fuels, that carbon pollution has gone into the atmosphere, and it causes all of these impacts that we see from climate change. The biggest thing that we need to do is put less of that pollution into the air. We need to switch over to renewable energy and stop making that situation worse, But because we've waited many decades to take action, even stopping using fossil fuels is still not quite enough because there's already too much carbon in the atmosphere. People are working on all sorts of great technological solutions for sucking that carbon out. But right now, the only tool really that we have that works at scale and at cost to pull carbon pollution out of the atmosphere and store it long-term is nature. And so when trees photosynthesize, what they're doing, among other things, is they're pulling carbon, they're eating the carbon, pulling it out of the air, and they're turning it into wood and leaves and roots and ultimately soils. So the more that we can do to make sure that we are protecting our existing forests, by which I mean not necessarily never touching them, but not converting them into development parking lots, things like that, and that those forests are as healthy as they can be, then the better job they will be able to do each year of cleaning up mass and setting down some of that car pollution.
0: While the BNRC is not currently working with carbon sequestration programs, it does use the climate smart management techniques To increase carbon sequestration in the properties they manage, as Doug describes.
4: While there are those carbon sequestration crediting and financing programs out there, when we approach forest management and property management, we are looking at it through that that climate-smart lens, really trying to think about what type of forest management practices will allow for greater carbon sequestration over the lifespan of that forest. And we talked about how most of the forests here are about 100 years old. That's one of the most constrained times in that forest ecosystem for sequestration, for biodiversity. Taking these well-informed and scientifically validated approaches to break up and create more. So you're saying
3: a
0: monoculture forest is less valuable in terms of carbon sequestration than a more diverse forest. So part of the thing, part of what you're doing to increase the sequestration is to increase the biodiversity of the species. How do you decide what point in time you're going to go back to when you're looking at a property? Much of the Berkshires was cleared by settlers beginning in the 17th century, and many of the forests and woodlands are only 100 years old.
1: Yeah, most of the forests in the Berkshires are no more than 100 years old as farming declined and people let the forests grow back. There are a few parts of the Berkshires that were never deforested and have some interesting old growth or old (laughs) growth-ish trees that have been around a long time. You have
0: a property that is open space called hollow fields.
1: I can speak about hollow fields a little bit. And then in terms of the bigger decision-making process, I think I would defer back to Doug. In the case of hollow fields, One of the things that made it special was the fact that it was open. It had been farmed for a long time. And so when you go there, unlike many parts of the Berkshires, you can walk up through these wide open fields with this incredible 180 degree view of mountains all the way to the top of a a pretty tall hill and just get this glorious view. So part of it was just the experience of us being there being fairly different from many other trails. But the other thing is, because it was open fields, it's habitat to some species of grassland birds that aren't Mm -hmm. often found in this area. Their ranges have moved over the last many decades, but it's pretty hard to find a spot around here where you can find bobolinks and savannah sparrows. And there's bluebirds, and it's pretty special for that. So the management goal there is to maintain the openness Um, So the point in time is the recent past when it was farmed, because it creates habitat for species that otherwise don't have a lot of options around here. You need for bobolinks, I think you need something like 40 acres for them even to show up. And that's not an open space you often see. In terms of other sort of decision points, I might ask Doug to speak to that.
4: I'm happy to speak to that because the general age of the forest across the landscape does present some challenges and opportunities. And where it wasn't completely deforested for agriculture, it was heavily managed for charcoal production for iron smelting or home heating. So it was an industrial landscape, not that long ago in the grand scheme of time here in the Berkshires. But going back to the question of what timeframe do we select, I think part of it is it's the recent remembered past. And we, Jenny rightly brings up these grassland bird species that are in decline because we've been, have declining agrarian areas and where we have those remaining, they are becoming more and more fragmented by parcelization and home building. And so it's, some of it's less about choosing a time and more about trying to, choose a habitat that promotes a species that is in decline. So aiming to manage for a species like bobolinks, we get those, we get savanna sparrows, we get grasshopper sparrows in some very lucky occasions, and other bird and insect species that might not otherwise be there without that intent-driven management of keeping it in an open meadow condition. And then there's those co-benefits that it's a great trail. And it's a great view because of it, it's open space. If that property was reforested, those views would be gone. And it's something special. It's arguably a touch artificial, but it's something that's very rewarding and people are able to connect with.
0: Bess Dillman's reaction to Hollow Fields confirms that assessment.
3: Oh my gosh. It was first told about that trail across there by George Wislaki who was the, one of the founders of BNRC. It was up a little higher than the hollow field fields. <laughs> and so I saw this little side trail and I walked up to it. I thought, let me go check this out. And it was so amazing to come out into that field and you get the whole view of Yokan Ridge to Bosque. It just is a fabulous, fabulous view. And if you go there at the cert, at a certain time, you get to see the birds. That ah, oh, it just is. It's a wonderful place. Back to the
0: BNRC. You've talked now, both of you, some about contiguous parcels. You are working on a major project called the High Road.
1: What is the purpose of that? project. Where are you in it? Sure, I can jump in on that one. So the High Road is a visionary project that was dreamed up by my predecessor, the former president of BNRC, Tad Ames. And his idea was based on the fact that in Europe, you can walk across and on to multiple countries through trails across France or England or the Camino de Santiago in Spain, which goes through several different countries. And it's a wonderful opportunity to experience the land around you on foot. It can be a spiritual pilgrimage for people. It can be an engine of tourism and a sort of economic development. It has so many wonderful benefits and can be an engine of conservation because in order to create these long-distance trails, you need to conserve the land that they would go through or at least protect it in some way. And so the vision is to create a network of trails that connects the Berkshires. Um, Originally, it was seen as end-to-end, kind of a whole different routes where you could walk from Williamstown to Sheffield or that kind of thing. That's way off in the future. Now how we're really looking at it, and I think our thinking was really shaped very much by the pandemic and how people the importance of being able to get outside and be in nature and also how for some people that's difficult. Either they don't have a car, they don't have access, they're not as familiar with hiking. So the vision now is to create, is to connect town to town via trail or just town to trail. For example, we might start with a trail that goes from a downtown area out to a trail and then back again, but that's still an experience that's quite different from just driving to a parking area and doing a loop and coming back. The idea is that you can get somewhere. We used to talk about it as food to food, because if you're hiking the long distance, you need a place to stop and get something to eat. So you don't want to have way stations be longer than a half a day's hike, if you can possibly plan that. So right now, the status of it is we opened our first long distance segment, which connects Pittsfield to Lenox a year or two ago. It's called the Yokin Ridge Trail. And we now have a full-time high road coordinator who's developing, I think she's got five or six routes in various stages of planning. And um, each one is different and unique in the kind of hiking experience that you would have on it.
0: The Appalachian Trail goes through Berkshire County. Does it interact with It, it-
1: it interacts with all of the trails. There's the Asheville Cook Rail Trail, and there's other long-distance trails that exist, other town trails. For example, in North Adams and Williamstown, a group of folks are developing something called the Adventure Trail, which will connect North Adams to Williamstown. And so we're trying to collaborate with everybody to the extent that they're interested, Um this experience will be pretty different from the Appalachian Trail. You can't camp on a BNRC property. That's historically been the case. And the high road isn't intended to be a backcountry hiking experience. It's intended much more to be like an experience you might have, let's say, in Ireland, where you might have a some kind of company that who brings you your lunch or ferries you from the trails and for that day to the bed and breakfast. And in fact, there is a company that started a couple of years ago called the Berkshire Camino, started by a woman named Mindy Maraglia. She hiked the Camino a couple of times, and it was such a profound experience for her that she wanted to create that here in the Berkshires. So she creates these hiking experiences and curates it and works with groups like ours, uses some of our trails and other trails, and then makes sure that there's the van and the place to stay and the box lunch and all of that. It's not quite as rugged as the Appalachian Trail, although some of the hikes may be just as difficult. Hiking across the Yolkin Ridge is a real challenge. That raises the
0: question. We've been talking about the sustainability and resilience of the properties that you conserve and manage. And so how does the introduction of more people into the natural area impact wildlife habitat, biodiversity? How do you reconcile those two things?
4: We reconcile it through smart root planning. There's a lot of work that goes into identifying where within a reserve these trails can go, utilizing maybe existing avenues or networks of woods roads. But it's often, it again, goes back and looks at that bio map three data and other site specific information that we have to ensure that we're not adding people all over a property, but we're concentrating people along a certain corridor where we, if there is, a negative effect caused by that recreational intensity that we're really limiting it to an area where it doesn't impact the property as a whole. A BNRC property is not a spider web network of recreation across it. Even our biggest reserves have some of the smallest trail footprints, allowing both people and nature to coexist. BNRC can't do what we do in land protection without people being a big part of it. And people are a part of this landscape and are part of nature. And so balancing those in, in in a smart and designed way allows us to use the best information that we have at a given time to limit the effects and promote wildlife conservation in addition to that recreational opportunity.
0: Bess Stillman hiked the Yoakum Ridge Trail both before and after the rerouting for the High Road project. Here's what she has to say about it.
3: So the trail starts at Laura's Tower. At least that's where I'd pick it up there. I guess it will continue into the town of Lenox. But if you start from Laura's Tower and go up over the ridge, you go over Lenox Mountain. And that's where There's a fire tower that's been repurposed for cell phones and that sort of thing. And beautiful view there. And you keep on going. There's another view, Yoken Seat. And then there was a long section that was in swampy, nondescript forest until you got to Basque. And, and Basque is a ski
0: resort along the ridge.
3: Yes. Yes. So you could go to Basque and then walk down the ski trails. Yes. Now the route has been changed and it is gorgeous up there. So it goes along uh, more of the top of the ridge and the rocks are beautiful and you get a few views here and there and the trees are very nice. And then there's, I call it George's Bench or Mahana Cobble, and you get a beautiful view from there. And then instead of going down the tree, the ski trails, most of the um, trail going down is a separate trail that has really been designed to be beautiful to walk through. So it's a huge difference how to make it most enjoyable for hikers and yet not go on a sensitive area that could be ruined or plants that are particularly sensitive, you don't want to trample over those plants.
0: Laura Marks is working on the Nature Conservancy's Staying Connected initiative, which, like BNRC's high road project, fosters connectivity. But it has
2: a different purpose and scope. Staying connected is a big regional partnership. Part of it covers the U.S. and the Appalachian Mountains. Part of it covers the eastern Canadian provinces and the Acadian Mountains. And we have about 70 partners. So it's a public-private partnership, meaning... We've got state agencies as partners. We've got land trusts. We've got watershed associations. We've got universities, planning commissions, departments of transportation, towns. And all of these groups are working towards this vision of maintaining a landscape across the northern Appalachians and Acadian Mountains that allows mammals to move with climate change, so to get from a big protected area like, say, the Green Mountains over to the Adirondacks. And the little piece that I work on, we locally call it the Berkshire Wildlife Linkage. It is the area between the Green Mountains in Vermont stretching down into the Hudson Highlands in New York. So it covers a lot of western mass, including pretty much all the Berkshires, and then parts of Connecticut, New York, and Vermont. And I think when we spoke earlier, I mentioned that the meetings that we have of the Berkshire Wildlife Linkage are one of my favorite events out of the whole year, because twice a year I get together with this dynamic, inspired group of people who are all rowing in the same direction to make sure that the landscape that we are used to continues to function for wildlife movement and wildlife habitat. The Berkshire Wildlife Linkage is the place that gets me in contact with uh, the Departments of Transportation, which is a little bit different from what I usually do. But they have been working with us for years on making sure that wildlife can cross under roads. So we have all sorts of streams that go under our roads right now through culverts or under bridges. And when those are designed well, they often... Can create a dry passage as well. So wildlife can actually go under the road rather than going over the road and risking a collision with a car. And MassDOT has been working with us on where are those places that are working for wildlife, where are those that could be improved, and how do we over time make more and more of our roads passable for wildlife.
0: So this is a solution that maybe workable for some areas and others because given the number of streams and number of culverts there is a now a pathway so you don't need to build the wildlife bridges as they have in San Antonio to get over a main highway but there's a basic question part of the assumption of this is that animals need to migrate because of climate change Could you just talk a little bit about how do we know that and what's happening that is driving this?
2: Yeah. So I think the clearest example of this probably is moose. Moose basically are these big, giant animals that were built for withstanding cold winters. They aren't very good at getting rid of heat. They're good at holding on to heat. And as the temperature has warmed... Moose have more and more days where the conditions of the environment aren't what they're built for. That's particularly obvious in winter when it's just warm. It's not below freezing in, say, January. It's also apparent in summer. Scientists working with Mass Wildlife and with UMass have put colors, these radio GPS colors, on moose. So they can actually track where they're moving. And one of the things that we find is that the moose spend a lot of their time in areas that have microclimates that work for them. So in the middle of summer, they're not totally submerged, but they're standing in water because it helps them cool off and they can find food there. And so that to me is one of the those charismatic megafauna examples of an animal that was built for environmental conditions that no longer exist and so is being crowded into these smaller places and moving north so that it's better able and there's more of a chance that it can find conditions that work.
0: They're canaries in a coal mine.
2: Yeah, these are just one of those warning signs. One of the other ways that people look at what is happening with animals, particularly in terms of figuring out whether there are barriers to their movement as they need to move to find better habitat, is looking at the genetics of them. And one way that that is done is you can take two populations of, say, a salamander, same species in two different places, and look at how genetically far apart those salamanders are. So what's the genetic distance from them? If you look at their genes, are they a kilometer apart? Are they five kilometers? Are they 10? And then you can compare is the genetic distance matching up with how far they actually are apart on the ground. So if two populations that are only one kilometer apart on the ground are actually 10 kilometers apart genetically, then that tells you that they're not very often able to cross that one kilometer. They're not interbreeding. And those studies, as you might imagine, are expensive and you have to do them over a long period of time but they're a really good way for us to see where barriers in the landscape are preventing that movement that, that we know from these other species and the changing conditions over time these species are having to, to move and travel as the environment changes around them.
0: Jenny? about your strategic plan and that is in process how will it affect increasing biological diversity natural habitat and wildlife travel corridors and just the general health of the ecosystem
1: one piece of the strategic planning process involves kind of bringing online this geospatial model which is a way of using mapping and data, the kind of data that Doug described, to identify the parcels of land in the Berkshires that are not yet conserved and that absolutely must be based on the criteria that we established through this process. Maximum climate resilience, sequestration, whatever it might be, creates buffer zones around towns for severe weather events, creates pocket parks in urban areas for kids. We can name any number of criteria that we might choose to feel are crucial going forward and then use this technology to, say, that one and that one, and then devote the resources towards them. Over the last few years, we've really expanded our thinking about, A, what kinds of land need to be protected in the Berkshires? What does the Berkshires need that only BNRC can provide? Or what more could we be doing to meet the needs in the Berkshires? So our new initiatives around farmland are really a good example of that. We've always worked on farmland, but in a very narrow defined way, and we've been really growing and no pun intended, opening that up to more ways of working to help farmers get access to land and stay on the land and thrive. Everything that we're doing now in terms of thinking and planning and researching and data gathering and analyzing that data is aimed towards creating more sustainability in the Berkshires. Last. Question. What advice do you have
0: for the listeners on best practices so that when they enter BNRC lands, they can support the sustainability, the resilience, the life habitat, and biodiversity?
1: I would just back up a little bit before I answer that, because to me, the question is what can people do to support a sustainable environment. And the and I would say the first answer to that is get outside, take a walk, invite someone to take a walk with you. Before you worry about how to walk the proper way, just enjoy nature, take a minute to enjoy it and bring someone with you to enjoy it. Because if you experience nature, you will fall in love with nature. And if you love it, you will protect it and you will find out what more you can do to protect it and build your own connection to nature because that's what will sustain you and create a sense of peace and healing and sort of passion for the natural world in yourself. Observing the birds at the feeder in your backyard or hiking up Yokin Ridge, it doesn't matter. It's whatever gives you that sense of pleasure and joy. And then in terms of how to care for it, we actually are publishing a new publication called Everybody Can Hike. And it's got guidelines for people who aren't as familiar with, A, how to stay safe out there, what to bring, but also etiquette, how don't litter, take out whatever you take in, that kind of thing. Don't collect wildflowers and harm the plants, that kind of thing. There's lots of resources that exist for that, and our new publication in English and Spanish is a great guide to that, and it's on our website, or will be very soon. And what is your website? BNRC.org. As Jenny recommends, Bestillman is fostering a new crop
0: of nature lovers. This new course that you're starting for Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at BCC, did it fill up immediately?
3: It filled up the first day that it was open for registration when you spend time walk slowly look all around you it's amazing what you can see how do you identify the plants i use an app called seek which is from iNaturalist. it works best on flowers and then there's an app called merlin and that's from cornell And it will tell you your options for birds by color. It also has a microphone. So you turn on the microphone and it will tell you exactly what bird song you're listening to.
0: Laura, can you give listeners an idea of some of the things that they can do on their own land?
2: Absolutely. And that is always a tricky question. So I asked some of my colleagues too for their ideas, which was helpful. This is so dependent on whether you yourself are a landowner or you're someone who doesn't own any land, but you're just really interested in this. And I would say that there's two actions that sort of anyone can take, whether you own land or not. And the first is just becoming really aware of which elected officials, and sometimes this is town officials, sometimes it's state, sometimes it's bigger than that, are working on the environmental problems that, that are facing you in your area and that you care about and making sure that that you vote for them. The second one is, particularly in Massachusetts, we have this, we are so lucky that we have this huge network of land trusts and community-based groups who, again, are working on the ground at a pretty small scale so, supporting your local land trust or your local watershed association or whatever that group is for you, I think it is really key and important. For those of us who are lucky enough to have land, whether it's a little yard or if people have a larger piece of land, keeping that land in natural cover is one of the most impactful things that any of us can do from a carbon standpoint. So, if you have forest, keep it as forests. Think, Really carefully about any decisions to convert forest permanently to another land type. And there's also managing with that principle that we talked about earlier with diversity in mind. So, even in a tiny little house lot, often we can have an area where maybe we don't mow and we allow some wildflowers to grow, plant a pollinator garden, or have some more different heights growing there rather than just grass.
0: Thank you, Laura. And thanks to Jenny Hansel, Doug Brown, Laura Marks, and Bess Dillman for sharing their knowledge with us today. Go to our website, livingwellintothefuture.net, where you can find our show notes and leave messages. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to Living Well into the Future wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Please give us a five-star rating so other people can find us. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play Living Well into the Future podcast. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Alley and WTBR-FM 89.7 Pittsfield for their support. Thanks to our production team and our intern, Owen Brown. Our music is written and performed by Michael Kopenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR,
3: Berkshire Alley, or the LWITF production team.